Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long-term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTID Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures, or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Just a quick note to let you know about the launch of the LTAD Network regional events. These will be kicking off with our very first event happening in Scotland on the 24th of February between 6 and 9pm at Orium, the National Performance Centre. If you want to know more details, then head across to the LTAD Network website or social media accounts If you're based elsewhere in the UK, keep your eyes peeled for future events as we start to organise these and branch out across the UK. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Matt McInnes-Watson. Matt is a performance coach and specialist in track and field, speed, power and plyometrics. He's the owner of Plus Plyos, a coaching business that provides plyometric programs and education. He's currently studying for a PhD in plyometrics, whilst teaching in the United Arab Emirates and coaching athletes from the UK and US. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me on, Rob. It's, uh, it's great to be here and looking forward to it. So before we dive into some of the stuff around plyometrics and, and uh, plus plyos, give us the backstory. What was it like for you as an athlete? What was your kind of athletic journey and, and story? And how did you fall in love with coaching? Um, so, I mean, I have a pretty, it's not necessarily related to, to jumping or doing a lot of um, plyometrics or dynamic work, but I standardly as a, as a brick grew up playing a lot of football um, and was pushed into that by, by my father and, and my uncle and stuff. Um, and was, it was just a, a big part of my life really until the upper, uh, till the upper age of kind of 17, 18 um, and I'd done a little bit of track and field, um, maybe through the ages of about 15, 16. Um, and until I got into uh, sixth form college, um, I started to play a little bit of basketball. And that kind of brought me into the realms of learning and, and finding out that I could actually jump. I'm six foot three or 190, 
tall. Um, so I don't know. I think people assume because you're tall, you can jump as well. That seems to be, you know, well, high jumpers are all tall. Um, but yeah, it was never something on my radar that, radar that I could jump high or I could move well like that. So started playing basketball, realized I could. Um, and I was actually an athlete rather than a basketball player. I started far too late um, and was told to go and try high jump. Um, and from the first time that I'd ever walked into a an organized coaching setting in terms of track and field, um, I met the the gentleman that is that's been my kind of lifelong coaching mentor. Um, I say lifelong in terms of my athletic career uh, and coaching career. Um, he's been my mentor ever since, and realistically has has taught me almost everything that. I am influenced by in terms of biometrics um, and that was part of his philosophy over a 30 to 40 year span that he'd taken um, from Canada that was influenced by the Polish back in the, the 70s and 80s. Um, so yeah that was a, a really big kind of wake-up call in terms of trying to learn and, and understand my body. So I had a, had a reasonable high jumping career and then kind of moved out of jumping um, and, and started to coach track and field. Um, and that, that's what really pushed my love for wanting to understand how athletes move better um, because I was, I was kind of moved into a coaching scenario that wasn't necessarily um, a, a choice of mine. It was more of a, oh, okay, I've got to kind of mop up what's going on here because there wasn't a coach present. Um, so yeah, transitioned me into a coach um, and I've continued to, to have my mentor, Eric, um, for him to be someone to, to kind of constantly go out and, and ask questions. And that kind of pushed me into a master's. And in the last three years, um, I started a PhD in plyometrics. So, and along the way of coaching, uh, you know, I've coached um, track and field specifically, but helped out basketball teams, helped out MMA fighters. And in the last two years, um, it's branched out to everything from volleyball players to handball players to American footballers, rugby players, you, know, you name it. As if you're moving at speed, um, uh, there's, there's been some sort of sport that I've worked in um, when it comes to dynamic movement. Nice. And you're currently out in the UAE, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I teach out in the UAE um, and yeah, we moved out here in 2019. Nice. So give us a bit of a, an understanding then. You obviously mentioned the, your master's and your PhD. So plyometrics is kind of a, you know, an area that I guess has continued through from that high jump to, to as you say, helping a lot of different athletes from lots of different sports. So uh, what, what led to the, the PhD being on the horizon as well as being a coach? What was the kind of opportunity that presented itself there? Um, I think that, you know, in a, in a 12 to 15 year span of, of being influenced by plyometrics or and learning about plyometrics as an, as an athlete and moving through into a coach. Um, I noticed that I'd seen enormous changes in athletes that were under the kind of regimes that, that I'd learned um, and Eric had taught. Um, and that kind of, it sparked me to start looking into research itself. Um, and I started to see quite quickly that there really wasn't research that was similar to what was happening within our group um, of training and, and me then starting to um, use that in my own coaching it wasn't it wasn't very similar there, there was a lot of differences in terms of um, just old work that I think needed a revamp 
Um, it needed a lot more of influences of speed. It needed to be a little bit more directed towards locomotion in general. Um, and it needed to merge closer to actual speed training, I think. And that's what we had done a lot as athletes. And I had then started to implement a lot more with my athletes was it was doing things at speed and it was getting athletes to learn how to organize their bodies at higher velocities. Um, uh, and that wasn't for me, I was, I wasn't able to find much within the research that supported a lot of that stuff. So I, and I kind of done a lot of investigating around that in my masters. And I wanted to dig into that further with a PhD after I finished the masters. So who are you currently completing your PhD through? I assume given that you're in the UAE, it's kind of by a distance. Yes, it's, it's a, it's a distance, distance learning uh, part-time PhD. Um, if there's any American listeners there, like they're completely blown away by the fact that you can do that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's through the University of Winchester uh, in the UK. Um, so yeah, it's, it's based around plyometrics, um, but it's not just necessarily on the, the physical work of it. It's, it's to do a lot with me trying to understand what coaches see plyometrics as, um, how they categorize them, the language that they use to categorize them, because um, that's an enormous part of plyometrics and dynamic movement. And I think open chain movement in general, we just throw names out there. Um, and I've come across a lot of situations and scenarios where coaches are giving athletes, especially now that we live in, a, in an age with a lot more internet-based online coaching, coaches are giving athletes drills to do or movements to do or plyometrics to do um, that they aren't interpreting correctly. So I've, I've heard of people trying to do um, single leg hops, so moving on the, the same leg repeatedly over three foot six hurdles. Um, so the full height of a hurdle and, and injuring themselves when that the coach meant a hop with to, to the coach was a two foot movement. So then it completely changes the, the idea as to, to what the coach wants uh, and how the athletes interpreting that. So um, I think it has to come from a bit more of a structure. Um, and as I said, a classification of movements that needs to now be there, I think, within the research so that we can we can build a platform and then we can start to understand where all these movements in open chain landing and takeoff based um, exercises fit on a spectrum. Um, and that's kind of the direction that I'm attempting to start things with in a PhD. I'm going to be far from anywhere near finished with it after I've done my PhD. It's going to be a lot further down the road within research. But yeah, that's the, the focus. Uh, and direction of it and within the first study um, I've just done a big uh, meta-analysis of the the field of research and, and and just looked at what people assume plyometrics are um, and whether those plyometrics uh, kind of inverted comma quote-unquote um, how are they influencing plyometric movements or plyometric testing movements and what I call sans plyometrics, so movements that don't have a landing to evoke um, a plyometric stimulus. Um, and I'll give you a great example of a piece of research that I, I kind of finished up because I'm pushing it through to be published soon. Um, and they, they had a, a plyometric testing group and a sans plyometric testing group that was doing counter movement jumps. And all they wanted to test was 
whether that would affect counter movement jumps. And the plyometric training group had a much larger improvement than the SANS plyometric. So they were, they were getting better at doing movements that weren't counter movement jumps than the guys that were actually practicing the specific movement itself. So this is why I, I, I like to try and dig into this sort of stuff and, and really understand what people understand plyometrics are. So the, the following study that I've done as well was on, um, was on a, a survey for coaches and trying to understand, you know, asking questions, what do you see as plyometrics? What movements do you see as plyometrics? And then I did one where I showed them four different videos and asked them to give me the name of these plyometrics. And um, so, yeah, you can start to see there's a bit of a, of a trend of things. And over the next few studies, I'm going to be looking at actually investigating what these look like physically with biomechanical measures, uh, physiological measures, and, and how things adapt over time. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. The, the pandemic hasn't helped with anything in terms of, you know, face-to-face research-based work, but um, yeah, it's exciting to see um, what's coming out of it already. Yeah, it's really interesting. This follows on very nicely from the podcast I just recorded with Derek Evely, where he was talking about uh, during his time with the English Institute of Sport, how important it was to get a shared vocabulary. Um, so when people talked about special developmental exercises for speed, you know, what are we talking about? Or speed endurance. What is speed endurance for a 100 meter runner or speed endurance for a 400 meter runner? Because people, you know, you say a word and, and that word can have different interpretations for 10 different coaches. So I think what you're talking about there is trying to get on the same page, isn't it? That when we're saying plyometrics, what do we mean? And what's a slow, you know, slow plyometric? What's a fast plyometric? What's a shock plyometric? You know, getting a, a shared vocabulary or shared terminology then allows for a better clarity of discussion around, okay, so where do we see these fitting? But if we can't get on the same page, we can never have that conversation around these, this is a better exercise selection or a better sequence, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually what I'm finding out more and more is that Verkachansky's work is sometimes misinterpreted with the translation through to through to English, which doesn't help us at all, um, and and I've heard things uh, and stories through through his daughter mentioning those those sort of words that you know the translation maybe isn't as good as we'd like it to be. So there might be some things that are a little bit murky in terms of what we can take from you know the forefather of biometrics. Um, but I think that we're starting to get a lot of research that can support us figuring out how we can categorize it and say, okay, well, this is probably what he meant. Um, and we can see, okay, yeah, we are now seeing from, from those findings that, yeah, this is pretty much as he's directed um, because, you know, I go back to his work probably daily and it's still, it still kind of blows my mind. Every time I reread things, I'm like, this still makes sense. I, I, it's still difficult for me to try and discredit this in any way, shape or form. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, really important thing for, for organizationally, especially. And then, you know, can we start to build this language or structure online? And, you know, we, we will speak to people all the time and they'll try to talk to you and you end up having a conversation about two different things. So, you know, are we able to, to start to, to structure things a bit better? Because I think it's for, it's for the better as well um, with how we move forward with the, the training method itself. Absolutely. So give us a bit of, a, I guess, an understanding of some of those preliminary results of that first study. So within that meta-analysis, what did you find when people talk about pliers or assume pliers? What, what are some of the variety of, of things that people are thinking about when pliers come into play? 
Well, I, I think I took about just over a thousand papers um, and they were termed plyometric and I got rid of 700 because they weren't plyometrics. So there's your first, <laughs> that's the first, right? There we go, tick. We understand that that word is not being used correctly. Um, you know, and that, and when I actually, when I look at the, the study itself, the amount that I've talked about that isn't really spoken about enough because, you know, I, I want to get down to what I've actually looked at in depth. Um, and it came down to only really finding 20 good studies that had used a plyometric protocol um, where the athletes were, you know, more than just your average, average Joe. They were people with experience. They were maybe collegiate athletes or people that were working within, within club settings that had a background in plyometrics. And that showed that in a lot of the results there, there were significant differences in most of the time within, I'd, I'd say a rough estimation of 90% of the, of the plyometric tests. Um, and I didn't, within those, I know it's a small cohort of papers, but not a single sans plyometric movement was not significantly improved with using plyometrics, which is quite telling in itself, I think. Um, I think what was also significant was the volume of landings. It tended to be, and there was a pretty good trend line showing that the, the higher the volume over a, it ranged between um, eight to 12 week interventions, but the higher the volume, the, the better the outcome <laughs> in terms of the testing. Um, and I had a, a a difference of some of them using 500 landings for the whole of the, the, the eight weeks, say, um, and one of them used 9,000 landings. Um, so there, there's a, a stark difference between them. Um, and then as I dig, digged kind of deeper into it, I looked at a threshold for, um, for interventions that used intensive or maximal and extensive or submaximal movements. And there was a threshold in terms of in terms of the landing volume for that as well. Um, it could be for intensive, the the methods that that came out, um, I'd say you could say better, um, and that were more successful at producing uh, adaptations within that period. They tended to be for intensive um, interventions around four to six hundred landings. There weren't much more than six hundred. That would use things like hurdle jumps or depth jumps. That's what I class as intensive. And the extensive models had to be over seven, 800 landings. Anything kind of within the 500 realm didn't evoke enough of an adaptation. There was kind of a, a group that had kind of pushed on past. Um, it gave like a, maybe a 5% better um, effect size after the, the post-testing. So yeah, those were some of the some of the interesting findings, um, and I, I wanted to split those things up. I wanted to look at intensity versus volume and how they interacted with the, and their relationships um, and how that would then support other things. And I, what I also did as well, which I think is, is good for people to know is that I did, I did look at some um, testing methods that had included speed training. And I classed that as a plyometric testing method. Um, and, I think in all but one saw improvements in decreasing speed over, it was, it was around um, 
10 meters to 40 meters. Um, it, it did have the most effect in the 10 to 30 meter range. At 40, meter, 40 meters, it started to kind of, you know, not has, have as much of an impact. Um, but the shorter ranges did have an impact on the speed training. The only one that didn't had a low um, training volume to their, uh, to their landings. Um, so yeah, some, some, some nice findings um, uh, and hopefully that will, it will be kind of, it will be shown quite nicely in the, in the paper itself when it comes out. Mm, nice. So some good stuff to, to kind of go deeper level in. So given that a thousand papers had plyometrics somewhere in the title or in the description and that got whittled down to 300 and then ultimately to 20 that were useful studies, it's definitely worthwhile clarifying when we talk about plyometrics, what exactly are the key characteristics to make something truly plyometric? What, what are those things in the definition that you're, that you're using? My definition is looking at a movement that has a it has to critically have a landing sequence to it. You have to be airborne at some point and your momentum from the previous movement has to bring you in to hit the ground. Um, and then you have to leave the ground on the, on the opposite side. So we have a landing and a takeoff sequence to that. Um, there's a lot of discussion that surrounds plyometrics in terms of the timeframes that that happens. Um, and it's, only really been, I think, popularized by um, Schmidt Bleacher, which was talked about during the 90s, I think. And I, for the love of me, can't find anywhere else someone else that said it that's not quoted him. I've done a lot of digging. Um, if anyone has, please let me know because I'd love to read it. <laughs> um, but the, the only other person that's really mentioned anything in terms of timeframes um, within literature is Verkachansky himself and talked about um, movements that, that become less plyometric or as I would class it, sans plyometric um, in nature would be something that would have like a, an amortization phase that would, that would go over 0.1 of a second um, or, or 0.15, it's in that kind of realm. And, it, and to be honest with you, when you do look at movements like that, that are a bit slower in that sense, um, I think that you do start to see the, um, the kind of typical plyometric stimulus that you would get that gives you, you know, a stiffer, a stiffer landing, which is, you know, created by joint stiffness, tendon stiffness, um, gives you a, a better pre-activation method when you're coming in to strike the ground, which kind of, kind of has a ripple through effect and how you couple the energy from when you land and then want to take off. So the ground contact time does have a big relationship in it, but it's kind of, you know, where, where does it start and end? Are you saying that a movement 0.25 is plyometric, but 0.26 isn't? It's hard to, to, to tell that. I think that you are, as soon as you get towards 0.3, you're going to see changes in an athlete. You know, if you were to chuck someone off, a, off of a really high box and they're on the ground for 0.3 of a second, it's going to look a lot different if you were to drop the box and they were to do it in maybe 0.2. It's going to look visually differently. So what that tells us in terms of biomechanically and the forces that you'll, you'll see underfoot and, and how they deal with that on the opposite end of the trajectory off of the floor is going to be really evident, I think. Um, so yeah, short answer is landing and takeoff and pretty damn quick. <laughs> I think that's, you're not going to go wrong with that a lot of the time.
So I guess a, a good follow-up question to that would be around some examples of maybe ones that people might have traditionally thought of as plyometrics that maybe don't fit into that definition and ones that do. So give us a few examples of things that you'd say, okay, that is a true plyometric, that one, not so much. Yeah. I think the, the really common one that everyone knows about is, is a drop jump or depth jump. And again, please, please let me know what your thoughts are in terms of what's a depth jump and what's a drop jump. Cause I think we all have a different version for that. Um, <laughs> Again, we go back to the language, um, but uh, I think really common ones as well are, are pogo leaps, um, you know, really hitting the ground, stiff kind of structures throughout the body. You, you're, you're bouncing on a pogo stick as, as, it, as it were. Um, sounds plyometric movements or movements that aren't truly plyometric. I mean, within the research, uh, the the biggest and baddest one was the, a counter movement jump um, and people described it in a few different ways people bluntly said a counter movement jump was plyometric um, and and in in my opinion of it um, are are critically wrong because they don't have the the landing to, to stimulate plyometric um, abilities or capacities however you want to to look at it um, there are a few other things that, that people see as plyometrics, maybe a like a drop landing and a stick position. And I kind of understand that there might be um, certain parts of that movement that look similar to plyometrics. Um, but I've, I've kind of spoken about this and I, I wrote this in, a, in an article previously that there are a lot of differences when it comes to how we prepare the body for a stick landing as opposed to one where we want to deflect off the floor as quickly as possible. Um, and yeah, so I, I, if it doesn't have the takeoff to it, I still don't categorize it as a true plyometric. And that takeoff has to come after being airborne. So people might think of oh, it as a takeoff and a kind of movement jump, but you're not airborne prior to that takeoff. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. No, that's interesting. It's really good. It's a you know, classic discussion. And as you say, if you start from the wrong point, then you just go off two tangents and there's two people kind of with completely different ideas in mind. But no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right. There's a lot of confusion around, you know, well, we're doing plyometrics for athletes. Well, actually, no, counter movement jumps doesn't fit into that bracket in terms of, as you said, really high speed and the characteristics of being airborne, landing, taking off again. Um, within that time frame, so no, that makes a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of sense. So those volumes that we talked about, around four to six hundred for as a threshold for intensive plyometrics, um, and then seven to eight hundred for extensive. What what do we see fitting into those? So for, I'm thinking here for the coaches listening and saying, okay, intensive plyos. What if we're going to talk about our terminology and get that correct? What fits under an intensive element, and what fits under an extensive element? Yeah. Again, I've done a. a I've, I've written about this previously, um, and I think that there is a there's some mistakes made with with categorizing intensive and extensive movements because intensive, realistically, I mean that that word to me and, and what it triggers in my mind of how I interpret it with, without the context of plyometrics, it, it's it's a maximal based entity, whatever you want to see it as. So I see that in plyometrics as a maximal based movement. It is something where there is maximal effort involved. It's or your highest ability to, to do something. So it would be doing something like a depth jump. It would be doing something like pogos for maximal height. Um, the flip side of it with the extensivity of, of plyometrics is 
Well, we have that maximal, we have that upper echelon of, of intensive plyometrics, which if we were to look at it from a, an S&C point of view with, with lifting parameters, where would we sit, you know, let's say maximal squatting ability and strength? Where would we sit our kind of 3RM and above or 2R, 1RM and above? Um, our, our absolute repetition max, well, it's probably going to be above 95%. And that's the same in sprinting. So we've got a very large percentage of this cohort of movements below, which I think people get a little bit confused about um, because they'll, I, I would never say that plyometrics sit under maybe 65% of, of uh, perceived effort or however you want to look at it. Um, because in order for you to get off the ground in 0.25 of a second, the likelihood is that it's going to be relatively intense on the body to do that. It takes some effort to, to hit the ground and propel, it, propel yourself off of it. Um, so there's a very large area around that. So you could say that there's a 30% area, whereas the top 5% is that maximal stuff. So extensive movements can be anything from bounding, you know, over, over a 30 meter um, distance. It could be repeated pogo leaps. Um, it can be hopping on one leg. Um, over over a longer distance um, but again going back to that extensive stuff is we have the the problem of well I can use movements that are really quite intense like hopping over a 30 meter distance that could be above my 90 percent but a, a, another coach might interpret well it's in the same group as all the other extensive movements and I've got a movement that's very extensive that's you know kind of in the 70 percent range and I'm using the exact same volume for that as I am for the hopping, which is pretty like quite a bit more intense. Um, so I have my own structure in, in terms of how I look at it. Now, obviously, there are there are obvious directions that you you would go with each of the the, the categories in terms of where they might fit in terms of extensive or or intensive. Um, but I think there are there are a lot of movements that are inherently intensive as well that people push aside to extensive they're like oh well it's not depth jumping or shock training therefore it doesn't count i mean my example the time is hop for distance or hop at high speeds on the fly and tell me how intense that is as a movement because i can almost guarantee you that you probably would deal with higher forces under the foot when you're hopping at speed or for distance than you might do falling from a, a depth jump and, and triple jump is the is the perfect example for that you know these guys are dealing with loads in excess of 10 times body weight that's extreme <laughs> that's intense so to call that extensive yeah it, again it's been poorly categorized the intensive method to verkachansky was this is shock training everything else underneath it is is a different form it's something different it's a plyometric action and it's not that that separate thing above everything else in, in terms of the shock method. So talk us through your categorization. Then. What, what's the structure you put in place to, to be able to organize all these things in a systematic and logical manner for yourself? Yeah. So, so I, I've used a lot of, a lot of Eric's work and I, I found that his, what he's called his tiered system is, is really, really valuable. Um, and it's been paramount to, how I structure all of my plyometric work and, and how I, that kind of is spread throughout the rest of training. So 
our intensive or maximal based is called the what we call the ping tier and that's based on movements that you are trying to ping off the ground with you know maximal intent but for the shortest duration possible um underneath that where you might start to look into the extensive realms we have what a class is more like a medium tier which is a lot more locomotive in nature it's looking at movements that aren't they're not maximal but they are still pretty violent they're, they're they're still relatively intense they are doing things like bounding they're hopping on a single leg but we're able to do these as well in multiple directions um, and different planes etc but we're still getting quite a good stimulus the ground contact times are staying fast um, and the the ground reaction forces will stay relatively high but you'll see that athletes will be able to do multiple repetitions of them Underneath that, we kind of have a split of two different tiers as well. One I call the light tier or what might be seen as kind of like a rudimentary series of things. We call it the light tier in that it, all of the movements have to be light. They might not necessarily have the ground reaction forces that people would assume with plyometrics, but we're just trying to pop off the ground. It's super rhythmical in terms of how we feel the ground, how an athlete will move um, and, and again it's about a, a finer form of locomotion itself it's a great introduction to plyometrics as well it's a great introduction to a session it's typical things that a lot of people use the kind of cast off of that is is what we class as our deep tier which might not necessarily be seen as plyometric but critically they do have a landing and takeoff to them um, but it's through deeper ranges of movement, uh, of motion, sorry. Um, so it might be something like you are, you're doing a, a split exchange leap. Um, so you're landing in a, in like a deep split movement and you're, you're jumping out of the movement, exchanging your legs in the air and then dropping back down almost as if the knee was going to touch the ground and you've got a long range, but there's a constant flow of movement. Uh, and again, there's a sort of rhythm to it that promotes a lot of great, we call it our supportive tier. It's great for joint health. It's great for learning how to control your posture in the air. Um, and again, it can be used metabolically. It's something just slightly outside the realms of plyometrics, but still has a landing and a takeoff sequence to it. So those are the four tiers that we use. Um, and you, know, you, you can understand how it might look intensive and extensive in, in a way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, obviously, one of the things that we talk about with, with plyometrics and, you know, using the term plyometric in its true sense in terms of, you know, uh, being airborne, hitting the ground, taking off with those high ground contact times is that element of stiffness, which I guess what we're talking about is a very small bandwidth of joint angles. So we're not, you know, we're not going through a full range. So it makes sense that that deeper tier, you know, when we're talking about deeper range of motion. Okay, that doesn't fit with our higher, more intensive uh, shorter ground contact times, higher ground reaction forces, but there's still a preparatory element or there's still something in, in a plyometric kind of arena that, that is happening there, but up to your much higher end of that maximal intent, which, as you say, can't necessarily be done for multiple reps, has real high ground reaction forces, high ground con contact times. So you can see a nice spectrum there in terms of those, those tiers. That makes a lot of sense. So when you're looking at that, how would you integrate your plyometrics with other elements of the program in terms of a, an annual plan or in terms of the session itself? What's your thought process when you go to integrate that with something like the strength training element, for example? Yeah. 
I, what I always preach to someone with our system is that we, we, there's no point within the year that we don't touch upon each of those elements. It just undulates the amount that we, we, we will touch upon those. Um, so it could be at certain parts in the year that you're going to see a lot more medium, deep and light tier movements. And, you know, that could be typically within a, a GPP stage where you're preparing to, to get ready for more specific movements as, as we gear up towards the season. So in terms of how I'd spread it out throughout the week, it could be I've, I've got groups of athletes that like to have a, a specific part where I go through light ping tier, medium tier, deep tier, done, move on to speed work, move on to lifting, whatever it might be, move on to change of direction stuff. I've got other athletes that I will, I will kind of disperse it throughout the week. So we'll use things like the light tiers in all warmups. We'll use the, the deep tier work, maybe on more of a metabolic day, or I've often got a lot of, especially jumpers in the track and field world that like to do deep tier work after they've done a technical session. It's almost like a flush out, but there's still a little bit of a, of a focus towards um, just some blood flow to, to the joints that they've been critically using um, and just a way for them to kind of bring everything down, slow everything down uh, and finish up a session. And then we could be using things like ping tier movements in examples could be um, doing some contrast work. It could be preparing for speed work. I've got a lot of guys that will as well, they'll start to use a whole program and they'll be like, I really think that this will help how I get ready for, let's say an acceleration day. So I've got a few guys that use a deep tier, a couple of deep tier movements and then do acceleration stuff. Or if they're doing a max velocity upright running day, they'll do a lot more vertically based um, ping tier work. So it's very specific to the athlete, I think. Um, and, and again, it can, it can have a, a specific direction with the sport as well. But it's important, as I said before, that all of them are touched upon all year long. Um, and, and as well, in terms of movements, I will always always preach that hopping as a movement so moving on one leg continuously um, never leaves the program so there is never one week within the year that you don't do a small dose of hopping um, and it can be one set of 20 meters worth of hopping on each leg and that could be it but we're always touching upon that and how that can constantly feed how it looks after you know hamstring posterior chain stuff how you're dealing with, with landing forces uh, and being able to just organize the body to constantly propel itself. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of an, an example as to the many variations that, I, that I'll program it with. Um, but I think it's really important to, to have things like light tier movements in a warm up. It's being confident enough to, to use a bit of volume of medium tier movements. It's not gonna destroy you, but it's constantly, building in landing patterns that are kind of year on year development. And again, people do get really quite intimidated by using, let's say basketball, I always get it, basketball teams, they get all the plyometrics they need within, within basketball. And I'm like, great, okay, cool. But they don't get the plyometrics that we do unilaterally or, or bilaterally. They might be doing things that are keeping them fresh for the 40 minutes that they've got to play. So when we step away from that, we need to do extra development. 
um, to, to really grow these athletes. And, and it can be in small dosage. I think people assume that it has to be, you know, we've got eight weeks, we're going to, we're going to load them with all of this. Well, I think that there's a much longer developmental stage in terms of the skill paradigm of plyometrics as well, um, which I think can take years. So a small dose every week for a couple of years is going to have a larger impact than you every off season trying to go back to that training entity because you haven't touched it for six months. Yeah, I think I saw a tweet from Mike Boyle that was around, you know, the best way to get strong is not to get weak in the first place in terms of keeping things in a program year round. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, having dabbled a lot previously in trying different programs, you always come back and realize, oh, I'm not good at that ability that I wasn't training funnily enough. So yeah, that kind of conjugate or, you know, uh, style of keeping things in, but just turning up the emphasis on, on one particular component makes a lot of sense. So going back to the contacts element and, and the idea around, okay, that, you know, for our intensive, uh, you know, uh, plyos, or I guess what we call maybe the ping tier in our, in our categorization, if I'm understanding it correctly, yeah. um, around, you know, some of those much higher four to 600 contacts. And then, you know, for our extensive, I guess that's probably more our, our deep tier and our light tier. Would you say, or is it even that medium element as well? It, it de depend depending, I think, on the athlete and the the sport itself. Um, I'll I'll look at that as well in terms of how that fits the specificity of, of what it might look like within their sport. So it could be that you do a lot more. You don't necessarily do as much intensive work with something like a, a football or soccer player. Um, you would do a lot more kind of standardized locomotive work like medium tier and, and you would be able to ramp up the volume a little bit more on that and you wouldn't do as much ping tier it would just be in small dosage that could be like an example of how yeah you, you might look at that differently um so yeah it, it, it medium is kind of on the cusp of it being you know it, it, i wouldn't say it's maximal but it's still quite intense um so yeah it's it's something that i don't think leaves the program very often um it's things like uh, a large dose of ping tier movements might do, but you'll just keep in maybe two or three movements a week um, or a couple of times a week that will keep things ticking over in terms of like maximal intent. Those dosages that we talked about, that was over the course of the training program, was it, which was eight to 12 weeks. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, yeah, eight to 12 weeks. Um, and, and what's quite different in terms of how I look at volume is I, I measure volume in distance. Um, and distance traveled rather than ground contacts. Um, and that, that has just come from a coaching groups of athletes, number one, and saying, right, this is a relative area in terms of what I want to see. And I now know that doing 30 meters of leaping is way more intense than doing 30 meters of bounding because you're going to get far, far less contacts in when you do bounding. So like I've built a system around volume in distance kind of like you would with a sprints model. Um, and, and that then obviously differs in terms of what sort of tiers you'll work within. So in, within deep tier movements, you're not going to move very far. Within ping and more extent and, you know, uh, medium tier, there's going to be a lot of traveled volume to that. And obviously it depends on the, the angle in which you're, you're moving in, whether you're going for height. If you're going for height, you're not going to be going anywhere. If you're going for, for distance, then obviously you're going to be traveling much further. So um, I tend to use that, but I still am aware of the uh, of the landing volumes and how, roughly how many landings that they will get. Um, but yeah, that's it. the the number that, that I was speaking about previously is quite an arbitrary number. It was just what was um, 
what was evident within the research, but those were kind of small um, grouped areas that were like, okay, that's where it has an impact. A bit below that, it doesn't have so much of an impact. Um, and again, there's a lot that's thrown around in terms of, well, you can't do more than 120 landings in a, in a session. That's literally of depth jumps. Um, that's what maybe people are, are quoting, but 120 landings, that's nothing. I can do it. I can get guys doing 300 landings of light tier movements and be like, right, I'm ready. I'm warmed up now. Can we do a sprint session or can we now move on to doing more intensive stuff? So it depends what kind of landings you're doing. So again, 500 light tier landings might pre might pre fatigue the lower leg, but your hips and everything around the knee is going to be ready to go. So can you do 500 landings of light tier movement and then go into the gym and do, you know, typical things that are going to be working the hips. You're going to be able to deadlift and things like that. You might not be able to do that if you're doing 500 deep tier landings. So you've got, there's got to be context with it all. And again, it goes back to, well, what's one landing opposed to another movements landing You know, how much is that worth? So that phrase extensive or intensive, again, it, it kind of shows that it's too broad and there needs to be further context to that and, and a little bit more of a deeper understanding of what does a hot landing mean as opposed to, uh, a two-footed leap landing how much more does that cost to one athlete than it does to another mm, no that's fantastic that was going to be our next question actually was you know when you are managing a group how do you go about it because it's very difficult to keep you know tallies for ground contacts where lots of people are moving so that makes perfect sense to use a more distance-based model for uh i guess the more horizontally biased plyometric you're actually going to be moving whereas i guess it's a bit easier when it's a vertical plyometric because you can say to the athlete i want you to do 10 contacts um, yeah, so a bit easier yeah. to manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and actually, it's important to point out that I don't typically have so much of I don't have that many movements that are that I'll say are vertical that are purely up and down. I do quite a lot of vertical movements that still travel, um, because it still brings the emphasis a, a bit of more of a locomotive emphasis to things. It teaches you to be able to deal with in, a bit of incoming velocity into that landing to to be able to organize your um, your trunk so that you don't over-rotate. There's only one real sport that you want to over-rotate in, and that's the high jump. Everything else, you want to be able to maintain your chest up, whether you're heading, heading a ball in football, whether you're dunking a basketball, wherever, wherever you're spiking a ball in volleyball, you want to maintain upright posture. So just doing things on the spot, yeah, great, I'm going to maintain that. But when I'm traveling, it enables me to organize myself and understand how my trip how my hips travel through um so yeah that's another little little thing that maybe people can take away from that to to include into vertically emphasized base movements Mm. and i guess that also you know that tier system kind of addresses that you know age-old question of you know does nothing need to do double body weight back squats before they can do pliers well clearly not at that you know that lower level that's clearly not a requirement but actually at a higher level okay maybe that strength element you do need a decent base but that's always the classic thing that comes out when people are talking about plyometrics and it's all just shoved into the same box is there's a big misunderstanding isn't it it's like are we talking about you know pogos or are we talking about you know shock shock landings and depth jumps and you know there's a there's a big variety across the spectrum there as you've you know shown with the tier system so answered answered that kind of age-old question quite nicely so in terms of some of the terminology i've seen you sharing on a few different articles and tweets etc you know, for, the, for those who maybe aren't aware, explain to us the difference between RSI, RS output, and RS ratio. What are we talking about when we're talking about those three different things? So, I mean, I'm not going to 
I won't go into too much detail in terms of RSI, but RSI, I think a lot of people are starting to, they understand that they will use it. It's the, the index of reactive strength um, of understanding um, the relationship between the time spent on the ground and the height that the, you're then able to propel yourself or the time that you're able to propel the body into the air for. Um, and that gives us a pretty good ratio, a pretty good index. Um, and I'd say a number um, to, to understand maybe somewhat level of reactive strength, our, our ability to deflect off the ground um, and do that um, efficiently and within a good timely manner. And it's quite biased towards timeframes as well. I think, I think the guys, you often see that, I think 0.01 to 100th of a second is, is worth something like five centimeters in the RSI equation. I think five centimeters, you know, when you're jumping above 60 centimeters is, is quite, <laughs> quite a step up, but I, I bet that quite a few people can drop that 0.01 of a second off of the, off of the ground contact time. Um, so with the, the RSI, um, I've always kind of felt like, all right, great. I've got a, what I would call as a, a symptomatic measure. It has told me what has come based on what I did before. So the things that I do before, I think are really important to look at. And, and what I mean by the things I did before is what, what has happened in the previous movement for it to give you this ground contact time and then you being able to then propel yourself maybe 50, 60 centimeters into the air in say something like a depth jump. And it is obviously easy to measure things in terms of, okay, great. Well, my athlete fell from 45 centimeters, hit the ground in under 0.2 of a second and leaped 50 cent, uh, 45 centimeters into the air. Great. I'd say, you know, you've got a relatively good RSI measure. You can understand that it's pretty even in terms of what they're able to deal with and then propel themselves into the air. But when it comes to a lot more horizontally focused movements, it's hard to, I think, use the RSI measure um, as effectively as you would for maybe more up and down based movement. And I think biometrics is going in that, it's evolving into that direction. We have a lot more uh, coaches and athletes that are confident with using more locomotive based, hopping, bounding, whatever you want to, you know, doing takeoffs in a, uh, in a straight line, however you want to look at it. So I wanted to look at something that could give us a bit more of a measure of incoming momentum versus outgoing momentum. So we put together, I say we, uh, my good friend Ash Buckman put together, um, I kind of came at him one day and he, he's much better mathematically minded than I am. He, he's much better on Excel, all this sort of stuff. So he's always a, a soundboard to go to when it comes to this stuff. And I was like, you know, tell me what this is. I've just been thinking about it for a while. Um, so we wanted to put together a ratio. So we came up with the RS or the reactive strength ratio. And that looks at the influence of incoming momentum and outgoing momentum. And it's broken down into us calculating flight time instead of jump height. So we're able to use flight time with more horizontally focused movements. So let's say that I've got, I actually wrote down a, a couple of numbers here and stuff just so I could kind of give you an idea. Um, but let's say that you're in the air for, uh, in, the, in a previous movement for, 0.7 of a second and you come in you hit the ground in 0.2 of a second and you leave with point with a, a flight time of 0.7 of a second that would be what we'd call the perfect rs ratio um, and that would be the ratio of one that we would class we've been able to utilize 
the incoming momentum and propel ourselves equally. Um, and we calculate this by, by actually taking an RSI score in reverse for the incoming momentum, and we call that the incoming RSI. We basically, we take that incoming flight time divided with the, the ground contact time. And we will use that against what we class as an outgoing RSI or a standard RSI. We take the outgoing RSI, we divide it by the incoming RSI and we get our ratio. Now, uh, a good way to look at things is, okay, well, what, what does it look like for us to tilt either side of the ratio or optimal ratio of one, what we call the equilibrium ratio? Um, well, if you were to come in way too hot, let's say that you came in and you had a flight time of 0.8 or you came at 0.7, but your outgoing flight time was like 0.5. Well, that shows us that you weren't able to deal with that eccentric load as well, that, that momentum that was coming in. And therefore, subsequently, you only produced something that was maybe something uh, of maybe 0.5 of a second in the air. Um, so we will call that a negative ratio. Okay, so that might be 0 0.90. The flip side of that is doing exactly opposite of that it's maybe doing something that's a little bit more concentrically based where you're actually having to try to hit the ground rather than naturally deflect off of it. So you might come in with a less flight time and leave with a bigger one. That isn't necessarily negative, but it might be that, okay, well, if we're doing something like depth jumps, we're not getting enough maybe out of it. We want to test that eccentric capability and how we couple that energy. So we think, okay, we can kick the box up because we know that Previously at 45 centimeters, you jump 60 centimeters into the air. Let's see what happens at 60 centimeters. Do you, does that go up again to 70 centimeters? Does it stay at 60 centimeters or does it drop? Where is that, where is that line where we're finding that optimal ratio of one? And I will say it's almost impossible to hit a perfect ratio of one. So if you're very close to it, then you're in a good realm. Um, so yeah, the, these are some of the ways in which we can use the RS uh, ratio to, to look at movements. And what we've done equally with that is think, well, it's going to be all the time that when we put down data into this calculator that we've got, that we're going to come up with a negative and then maybe a positive and negative, and it's going to flip back and forth. Then we've set up training bandwidths. We've said that anything below the 10 percentile either side. So if you're training... If a movement's below 0 0.90 or it's above 1.1, then the likelihood is that you're maybe getting a little bit too much of that stimulus um, that you might not necessarily want. So if you, you are trying to evoke a little bit more of an eccentric load, then great, work within 0.9 to 1. Anything past that, you might see a diminishing return on what you're getting back. And again, equally the other side. If it's above 1.1, it might be a little bit more towards a concentrically focused movement where it's about pushing rather than using a, a natural elastic response that you get from plyometrics. That's realistically what we want in plyometrics. It's, you know, you're, what you're getting, what you're receiving is what you're able to, to put out equally. That, that is what I would class as kind of optimal reactive strength. So where does RS output come into that? What is what underpins the uh, I guess the terminology of the calculation there? Yeah, so RS output was actually something that that Ash um, did come up with, and he was he was like, okay, great, well, we've got this understanding of how we can look at um, 
I'd say locomotion a bit better. You know, I would say that obviously there are natural asymmetries to the body, but realistically, we'd love to see a sprinter that has an optimal ratio of one as they flow down the track, right? And it's the same, you know, when you see Federer move on the court, you're thinking everything that he does is rhythmical. And Ash was like, great, but we still don't understand maybe something that looks at or, or gives us some form of arbitrary number for neuromuscular strain. So he wanted to say, okay, he's like, okay, great. I've got, we've got, um, we've got RSI scores that are the same. And I've, I've got down the numbers that he, he put in, a, in our article. And it's a great example here. So we've got two different depth jumps. We've got a depth jump from 30 centimeters and a depth jump from 60 centimeters. And I will say the RSO is a little bit more based towards testing for depth jumps and stuff. So yeah, the depth jump from 30 centimeters, depth jump from 60 centimeters. Well, you've got, we tested this, we've got two different uh, ground contact times. For the 30 centimeter one, we've got a ground contact time of 0.18. For the 60 centimeter one, we've got 0.19. So not, very, not a very big difference. The flight times, for the 30 centimeter one, we had outgoing was 0.55. For the 60 centimeter bigger box, it was 0.59, okay? So that gives us RSI's, oh, hang on two seconds, where am I? I've lost myself, sorry, that, yeah. So that gives us, that gives us an RSI of, uh, am I, have I got that down right? Two point, sorry, yes, we've got 2.9, uh, 2.97 and 2.98. Now, how we look at things then is, okay, great. We've got two scores that are relatively similar, but it doesn't give us the overall story of what kind of strain that would place on an athlete. Um, and I think that with a lot of other movements as well, we'll just use maybe a coach's eye. We won't necessarily measure something. We'll go, okay, cool. Yeah, that, that looks like it was relatively similar to that we might take the RSI of it and go, okay, great. Well, we've got two RSI scores that were pretty similar. Now what the RS output does is it considers the incoming momentum and outgoing momentum. And we take those two scores because the incoming momentum is gonna be the one that's really gonna dictate the kind of neuromuscular stress that we're gonna receive on the body. That's gonna be the thing that if we continue to do 60 centimeter depth jumps, the likelihood is that you're going to start to fatigue much faster than you would if you were falling from 30 centimeters. Okay. So our RS output takes those two RSI scores. It takes an average of them and then uses that to divide with the RS ratio. And it sounds, it sounds quite complicated, but I think, you know, you, you can go and read about this um, uh, within our, our social media uh, and some of the articles that we've written about it but it gives us an overall score. So the differences in RS output for that 30 centimeter depth jump and the 60 centimeter one is we get a 2.54 RS output score for the 30, but a 4.31 for the 60. So it shows us straight away how much higher that score is for RS output when you fall from that 60 centimeter um, altitude. And that's based on the amount of falling time and the amount of you know, gravitational pull that you're going to get. It's going to be way faster as you hit the ground. Um, so, and we've used this as well, which is, is great in a way to, to look at 
things like a a 10-5 test and a protocol to, to understand, you know, if we were to use things like leaps on the spot or we're using a, a depth jump protocol to, to understand where you might see diminishing levels of return or certain levels that you're going to get um, better training zones within, we can also take that arbitrary score of the, of the RS output um, and use that to go, okay, well, this is why you were super fatigued after this. If we calculate the RS output for these scores, we can see that that score is so much higher than it was when we use, say, a lower box. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's quite arbitrary. It, it's not necessarily going to be perfect, but I think it gives us scores straight away when it considers the incoming um, the incoming momentum and gives us that value so that we can separate those two different things. Hopefully that wasn't too complicated. Um, it's quite difficult to, you know, to talk about it rather than when you write about it yeah, and yeah. having examples. No, it's great. It's great. And obviously you've built a reactive strength ratio calculator as well to help people with some of these elements. Um, so is that freely available online for people to kind of start using some of this yeah. information? Yeah, you can. So we have, um, it's on the, the plus pliers, so pluspliers.com. Um, and in the top right hand corner, it says RSR slash RSO. And if you click there, it has the two links to the, the two articles that we've written, one on RSR and one on RSO. It has a manual for both of them. And it has the, the calculator, which, which calculates RSR and RSO. And it does it, you've got loads of different options for it. So you've got things like a 10-5 protocol and it, it has RSO built into it and RSR built into it. You have things like more of a locomotive calculator where you can look at back-to-back -back bounding movements. Um, so yeah, it's it, obviously you have, to, you, you have to take your own data yourself. Um, we're getting to a stage where we, we've spoken to a few um, VBT companies and, and I'd like to really get that built into a device, which we, I think would be great. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all freely downloadable. So yeah, go and use it, play with it. It's something that we have kind of thrown caution to the wind and said, you know, let people play with it. If someone wants to come back to us and say, this doesn't work or this does work, I found this and this, um, I, I think it's, it's there to be kind of, you know, destroyed if it needs to be. <laughs> it's have fun with it, play around with it, let us know your findings on it. And, and I, think, I think it can personally be something really valuable. Um, and the biggest standout points that I've seen from it are when you're using things like maximal bounding and I, it came across me as I started to write this if you're looking at RSR the idea for a movement is obviously to be as close to one as possible but if you are bounding from left to right we all have a dominant leg and a non-dominant leg when I bound off of my left I'm a left leg dominant guy if I bound off my left leg well the incoming momentum onto my non-dominant leg is always going to be a negative RSR. So when I come, so I've got a negative R, uh, I've got a negative negative RSR ratio that's or I've got too high incoming velocity or distance into that right leg. So I've already got a non-dominant leg that's getting that sort of force. So it's going to struggle to then produce a bigger outgoing movement, which then gives us a submaximal incoming movement to then my left leg. So my right leg is getting too much and my left leg's not getting enough. So when we look at things like doing maximal movements for beginners, you start to think about, well, 
how, how you know if we if we're really critical of things how good is it for the athlete are his rs ratios all over the show are they like this the whole time if they are the likelihood is that we need to step away from it we need to do more rhythmical base movement to learn the landing patterns a bit better learn the neural sequences that come with moving at speed on a on a single leg and then gradually build into more intensive or maximal base movements mm, fantastic that takes us really nicely into plus players so tell us about plus players what is it where can people find it yeah so plus um is a it started off as like a, a as a supplementary plyometric program but now it's become an entity that provides programs for any kind of sport that you can think of um it's got lots of educational resources on it we're constantly adding new blogs to it it's got some webinar based information on it it has um great resources in terms of just little tips like this that like we're speaking about. Um, we're going to be adding more about the RSR and RSO over the next coming months. Uh, and we're also integrating a little bit more of preparation movements between things like plyometric and speed training and strength training. We're trying to, to bridge a few things and I'm bringing in Eric, my mentor, um, and to, to support that. So, um, yeah, Go use it as much as you wish. Um, it's a subscription service, but I think it's a relatively uh, cheap fee. Um, but it's it's there to be used in, in all different scenarios. I have a lot of coaches that use it, athletes that use it, teams that use it, um, and, and they love it. Um, and it's all video-based. So every movement that you need to understand, you'll be able to see exactly what it what it is rather than being written and then misinterpreting exactly what that movement should be. Um, so yeah, that's plus buyers. Fantastic. I'm probably, this is probably going to be the, the most uh, ambiguous question. So based on what you know and around the research that you're doing, what, what would be your advice for parents and coaches when it comes to youth athletes and plyometrics? Number one, don't be scared of it because plyometrics is a very, very large spectrum of movements. So if you can start at the, the easier end of the spectrum um, and navigate your way through moving into more intense movements then great start landing and taking off at early early stages within your development within your age you know I, I think that it's really really important to understand the skills and the the neurological side equally as important as is when you start to develop those physical capacities but landing and taking off um i think is a really important thing that not only will support you within your athletic career but i think has something that will you'll look into later on in life and there'll be research in the future that i think that will support this that when you're 70 or 80 falling risk reduces your ability to be able to control your center of mass is, is really important um, and starting it early doing small doses of it every week for 10 to 15 years as an athlete it is going to set you apart from anyone else and doing large variations of them, doing them in all different directions, having fun with it, playing with it. It doesn't have to be a clinical setting of, you know, some Russian experiment that happened in the sixties. This, this is now about movement. Um, I use the term all the time, but locomotion and speed dynamics as a, as a whole. 
Awesome. Well, you mentioned a little bit already, but what's coming up for you in the next 12, 18 months? Are you staying in the UAE? Are you, are you heading on elsewhere? Have you got any other projects in the pipeline? Yeah, so um, we're in the, in the transition of, of maybe uh, making our way out to the US um, and being involved um, in a bit more of a, of a coaching and performance environment. Um, and yeah, the, the aim is to continue, continue writing um, and producing for my PhD, especially, um, and meeting as, as many athletes as I can. I think in the last year or so, um, I've started to work with athletes in everything from bobsleigh to beach handball. Um, and, and I love it. And I, and I really enjoy understanding different nuances to different sports uh, and how plyometrics uh, and speed training integrates throughout it all. Um, it's it really is a commonality through everything so it tests my my systems my the ways that I do things um, and yeah I just want to learn more and more about it so yeah it's uh and who knows there's, there's so much that constantly crops up so it's exciting fantastic well where can people find out more about plus plyos and track you down on social media or ResearchGate, etc yeah so you can um, you can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter, uh, McInnes Watson, M-C-I-N-N-E-S-W-A-T-S-O-N, um, or at Plus Plus. It's that simple. Nothing, nothing extravagant. Awesome, mate. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been a real masterclass in, in true plyometrics and I've taken oodles of notes. So, uh, yeah, really, really fantastic information. So thanks again for sharing that with us. No worries. Thanks ever so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform, as well as 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram using the account at LTAD Network, as well as Twitter at LTAD Network, and find our website www.ltadnetwork.com. I'm not going